You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. Uh, if you have your Bible, uh, I would love for you to uh, uh, join us um, in the Gospel of uh, Mark. And if you're just getting started here, we're usually making our way through whole books of the Bible. We are in the Gospel of Mark, which is one of four biographies of Jesus, uh, intent on describing a different side. Um, each, each of the Gospels describes a different angle and identity of Jesus. And the one that Mark wants to key in on is that uh, Jesus is um, uh, he's, he's, he's kind, he's merciful, um, he cares for the sick and for the poor, but he's not a doormat. And he chose to lay his life down as a servant. Um, if you're a celebrity, you can't be a servant. You know, if, 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 you're, if you're building something that, that puts you on the pedestal, like you, you have forfeited the ability to simply serve and give because God gave to you, you know? And so Jesus wants to make it clear, like he's super kind and he's patient and, and, and all that, but he values the Father's opinion more than his, your approval. And, and he, that's how he serves. And, and so, so he's coming into the secret place all the time and he actually tells people to be quiet about his miracles. He doesn't want them you know, people to know, and, 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 he, and he moves slower than people want him to move. Even his disciples are like, hey, we got to get this thing moving. The train's leaving the station. He's like, I, I trust in my, in my father's timing, and, 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 and we're finding, you know, so we're slow, slowly finding out, you know, the identity of Jesus is to be a servant, and therefore the call of Jesus to disciples is also to serve as he serves, and, and to recognize some of the most powerful miracles in all of the Bible are in the book of Mark, that the one that, that came to explain that he's a servant just can't help to also explain that he's a king. And that in serving, that's really where, where the power of the kingdom of heaven uh, kind of rolls out. Um, so uh, I've, been, I've been preaching sermons now, I guess, for, I don't know, five years. I don't know how I'm doing yet. You know, you guys let me know sometime. Um, but uh, I, was a, I was a history teacher teaching about George Washington before I ever, you know, uh, preached a sermon. And, uh, and so I joined this preacher's club with my pastor, Pastor Rich Butler, who is uh, over at Hope Church. And we all had to prepare sermons. And he was like, hey, you know. Uh, I liked your sermon. You should you should uh, you should preach on X and X February date um, in in 2011 or whatever it was. Um, and uh, we're going to be preaching through the whole Bible. And what I want you to do is preach through the entire book of Leviticus in one Sunday. And uh, it was I remember like burning money on stage or something. And uh, it was like, please, please get this. Please help this make sense, Lord. Um, uh, but it has been, uh, it's been a joy. I, I, was, I took a lot of commiseration with Charlie Boyd over at Fellowship. He's been PhD and preaching for years. And it made me feel better, at least when he said, you know, on Saturday night, I always question my existence. Why do I do what I do? You know, is every Saturday night, he, he's uh, doing this stuff. And, um, but, you know, I, I think um, I've, I've always um, really been moved by, uh, as we all have, by different, you know, preachers that we can get on YouTube these days. I probably listen to four sermons, you know, a week, uh, being kind of a, a, a sermon person, and um, I remember listening in the, in the early college days to NUMA videos um, with Rob Bell. I don't, some of you guys are probably too young for that, uh, and I remember um, even in 15 minutes, sometimes preaching more than some people could preach in 50 minutes about, I remember this one called Covered in the Dust of Your Rabbi, and how there were uh, different levels within the Talmud of, of Jewish apprentices, and how uh, actually Jesus didn't pick the varsity uh, summa cum laude uh, Harvard graduates. He picked the least in the the last counted. He, he, he called all of us to be disciples. I remember that. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever seen this Francis Chan uh, message that he gave um, uh, about um, the length of eternity with a rope. Did you guys ever see this? There's a huge rope, right? And he's like just pulling this rope out. And he's like the simplest point that, you know, you're, 
you're glad that he's treating you so dumb because you're listening to this super slow point, but it sinks down down your soul the, the slower he goes. And he pulls this big rope out of eternity, and then he shows you this little red part of the rope, and he goes, and that's our life. And he says, don't miss the, the picture of eternity in the midst of, of your life. This is just one little spot in your life. You can, you know, sermons can, can stick with you. and can make a big difference. Um, last but not least, I know through COVID, um, I was so bored and, and also, I think, curious in my own spiritual journey that I um, just wanted to read the Bible on its own terms. And I remember listening to Bible Project and getting into the Tim Mackey sermons, who's definitely preaching for 50 minutes at a time. Uh, so I put it on times two, uh, but I get a lot out of it. And uh, I appreciate um, those sermons that sort of bring you the fish and give you um, the, the whisper of Jesus, you know, um, in a message. But I also appreciate teachers that teach you how to go get fish and, and get, get you to the Bible, you know. And, and I, so we're all inspired and moved by all these things. And I think we're all preachers, I guess, in our own way of telling our story and proclaiming the gospel in, in all of our, you know, you know daily lives. Um, but I, I share all that to say that it's been interesting to me as we've read along in the book of Mark how few, how, how great the acts of power and miracles are in the life of Jesus, but how few sermons there are in the ministry of Jesus. Like, if you read the book of Mark around Mark chapter 6, and basically he opens up with the only sermon that he ever really preached, which was, Behold, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. That's about it. There's no poem, no funny illustration, no story, no, uh, you know, uh, four Ps and a poem or whatever at the very end of it with the points. This is the kingdom of heaven. Come and follow me if you want to figure out what it is. And he keeps on going. And um, trial and temptation and tests and demons and waves and all these events happen where they are having encounters with sermons. They're just not verbal sermons. They're encounters with Jesus. And by the end of it, the goal of all preaching ministry, and let alone Jesus' ministry, uh, is accomplished in Peter, when we're going to find out in chapter 8, when when basically Peter finally gets it. And the get it moment for every sermon should just be, it's Jesus. (laughs) Jesus is the point. Jesus is the message. Jesus is the solution. Jesus is the answer. He says to him, like, I know who that prophet says, and I know who those people say, and I know what Twitter says and and Buzzworthy says, but this is who I say that you are. You're the Messiah. You're the Savior. and, And I know who you are. That's the point of all sermons. And so um, I think there's a reason. I think there's a reason why the method, the teaching curriculum of Jesus is more focused on, 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 on storms, really, than sermons. Uh, because we have, a, 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 we have a, um, a fixation, I think, in, in modern you know, Christianity to, to, to focus on sermons because they can change what we know. And there's something about knowing something now that I didn't know before that feels like it gives me hope that I have the fix and the solution now. And it gives me this kind of false confidence that if I know something more, it'll be better rather than just doing what I already know. And and it gives me this false contract that as I keep showing up on Sunday, oh, wow, now I get it. So now everything's going to be fixed. And it actually robs me from the very tension, the experience of like, actually, it's not the sermon. It's just the the trust and the obedience to what I already know, right, That, that sermons can sometimes rob us from. Uh, even in curriculums, you know, uh, there's something very uh, reproducible, very measurable for a modern mechanical mind to be like, first we put them in first grade and we teach them about these laws of the gospel. And then we put them in second grade and we teach them about, you know, the scripture. And then we teach them about over here speaking in tongues. And then, we, you know, like we have these black belts, right, where we graduate people from one step to the next. But it, I don't see any of these metrics in the life of Jesus. I don't see as many sermons as I see storms. And most of all, the, the greatest paradoxical dilemma, right, for the modern American Christian is when a preacher falls. How could somebody who knows it all, has all the answers, searches the scriptures but misses Jesus, and somehow their heart and their life is so far from everything that they know and they talk about, if sermons 
are the vehicle for change. So when you and I were kids, um, the best thing in the world was to wake up before school and eat Lucky Charms before your siblings did and watch cartoons, you know, to be, to, to be as late as possible to school without dropping out. I mean, that was basically the idea, uh, especially guys versus girls. Girls, before you all got there, they were just with an Xbox and a lawn chair, and they felt great about life. Like, they literally were not thinking about anything. They're just going through life, and you were the one that got them off the, the lawn chair, okay? And, and so, when I reflect on my emotional and even spiritual development, like, I didn't need an accountability partner to get to stop eating Lucky Charms and watching TV in the morning. I needed enough girls in my life to say, you smell bad, you need to put on deodorant. <laughs> right? Like the, like the change is not so much a change of habit, but it's a change of heart. It's that I find myself wanting something different. I would still be there if it wasn't for Kyra, watching <laughs> Batman episodes, you know, over and over and over again, if it wasn't for the fact that I sound something better than Batman. Like, that's, the, that's, the, that's how spiritual development works. Spiritual development is not a micromanagement of human behaviors. It is a shift in human desires. It's to find something better and find something greater that I want because no matter what it is that I force myself to do, people always just do what they want. In the long run, we do what we want. And so I think that's the reason, right? Why does Jesus offer, at least in the book of Mark, or one rendition of the, of the meaning of follow me, is that the testimony of Mark sees discipleship as a change more of the heart than of habits. This is what I have on the screen. How would it help us understand sermons and storms differently if we were to understand this fact that discipleship is not really a change in what we think and do most? Isn't it true that true discipleship and true change lies at the bottom of what we fear and love most. Sermons, therapists, counseling, like friends, those are all wonderful, helpful things. But the things that help us can't always save us. And the only thing that can really save us is that my affections get put on something better and my fears get put on something greater. That's the answer. Like, like discipleship is a change not of, of behaviors, it's a change of heart. And no matter how much manipulation or strategy or accountability or carrots and sticks I put on myself, if my heart wants to do something, it will. Jesus changed my heart. <laughs> Discipleship is not a change of what we think the most or do the most. It's a change of what we love the most. And so therein lies the answer. I think that, I think that what storms do for us is they put us up on shaky waters where our idols don't work anymore. Like, it's, it's, it's a point to which, um, whether it's a midlife crisis, you know, or whether it is just the mundane groundhog day of your professional career, or maybe it is that you just worked your heart out and they fired you anyways, that not your behaviors, your heart learns, I can't trust that thing anymore. And it's only so many times you get snapped in a mousetrap that you learn, right? You learn what can be trustworthy and what's not trustworthy, he has to take us out on storms where our idols can't last anymore because he doesn't want to just change our habits. He wants to change our heart. And I've got, to, I've got to confront that. Like, I've got to realize that the chewing gum in my mouth cannot plug up the holes in my boat. And, and, and neither can the family that God has put around me. Community is a great help to us, but it can't save us. And until we learn that only Jesus saves, not my friends, 
then I will ruin my faith and ruin my friends because how many know you can't put something in God's spot that's not God? You'll crush it. So what does a storm do, right, that lectures can't do and books can't do and podcasts can't do is that they threaten our idols and they stir our affections for what we really can trust and what really is worthy and what really is trustworthy. And that's where sermon after sermon after sermon can't replace the boat and the storms because it's only the storm that I know that I can, I can fix my fear and fix my, my love on the only thing that it can satisfy, which is Jesus, which is Jesus, the point of every sermon. Verse 45 in Mark chapter 6, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat. If you ever had to drag your kids to school in March, you know what that made word means. That means you got to drag them into the boat, right? Like they, they weren't going to go into the boat and Jesus made them go and they've been in these boats before. They've got a PTSD about these boat situations with Jesus. Okay, and we're going into the boat again. All right, here we go. And going ahead of him and beside her and he dismisses the crowd. Like, repetition is key. How many, how many times you do something is key. If, if a cute, charming guy comes and asks you on a date and, and takes you to Dave and Buster's, that's pretty charming. That's a pretty cute move. Like, we're going to have a good time and not take ourselves too seriously. If he's taking you on seven dates, and every seven times he's taking you to Dave and Buster's, you got to ask questions. Like, what's going on? Do you have mother wounds? Like, what's, what's happening? Like, at some point on date number eight, I snap, and I'm like, I'm not going with you, dude. You're nice, and I like your dimples, but we're not going to Dave and Buster's. That's weird, right? So we got to pay attention to, 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 you know, quality and quantity. We have to, to the reps. Like, how, how many times now are we in the boat? We're going to the boat, the Gethsemane. We're going to the boat to the Gennesaret. We're going to the boat to the, to the Judea and all these things. We're going to the boat, and the boat is this common theme. What is it about the boat that Jesus is doing in this thing? Verse 46. After leaving them, he went up to the mountainside to pray. That's what I think it is. I I know a guy that went to um, Galilee and went to this mountain, and, and he said that when you go up to this mountain where Jesus prayed, he could see everything that was going on with the disciples, even though he wasn't in their presence. And that there is a preview and a spotlight, really, of our era and dispensation, right, in church history, is that Jesus is here, but he's also, he's also better that I would go because he could be seated at the right hand of the Father. Seated at the right hand of the Father doesn't just mean that he's done work or he's doing work. It's that the work is done. Like, people don't put their feet on the lawn chair and look at the grass they just mowed unless the lawn's done, right? Jesus is done with his finished work, and so now he's seated at the right hand of the Father, which means that everything that happens down in this place is turned for good and glory for those that love Christ Jesus. It's a sovereignty position. When he ascended, though, that's not the only good thing about Jesus going, is that it's better that I would go that I would send the Spirit to be in you and with you. Not just to visit you, but live in you and make him your home. And so I think there is a preview picture that he sends them ahead to go ahead of him, but he didn't leave them. And then he goes to the mountainside to pray, not to stop watching them, but to watch them with, with, a, with a better viewpoint and an authority as an intercessor to pray for them, is what I think is going on in this passage. In verse 47, later that night, he goes out, they go out to the middle of the lake, and he was um, alone on the land. And so whatever denomination you're from, like they're... they're there is in the Bible a category for something called the manifest presence of God. Like there is a way that whether it's through scripture or community or alone time, that you just feel his nearness. And if anything, there's just like nothing that can exchange the certainty that I know that he was with me and I know that he said that to me. And even if something goes wrong, that's, that's a perennial value for the church to know that he was with me. But the, the hard part and compromise of the manifest presence is that when you're not having that, it feels like there's a manifest absence. 
that, that when he's close, it makes you question when it doesn't feel that way, why it feels far. And C.S. Lewis, who's a great theologian, practice talks about this even in kids' language of Aslan coming and going and coming and going and, and, the, and the cycles of this process of presence and absence and feeling like he's in the boat, right? But this is what I think is simulating for us as disciples here in 2023, is that notice what it says about the position of disciples. Like, they're not at the beginning of their journey. Like, they're not in middle school anymore, smelling like Campbell's new soup, and, and getting called to Jesus, you know. And they're not at the end. But the location that it tells us, without a ton of logistic you know, coordinates, is, is we don't know exactly where they are. And they're like, but they're, they're not at the end of it. And they're not at the beginning of it. What does it say in verse, in verse 48 or 47? It says that they're right in the middle of it. The difference between this deja vu in the boat versus the last time is that Jesus isn't in the boat with them this time. Last time he was there, but he was asleep. I don't know if that's better or worse, but he was there. I mean, it's basically like your manifest presence is not doing enough for me or something like that, right? So he's there, but this one, at least, you know, tangibly, it feels like he's not. Anybody there? Right? Not there. Feels like not there. Number two is that this one is not about talking to water. It's about walking on water. But the first one was about calming the storm, but this one's about, it's about putting courage in disciples in the storm to see their rabbi not just dealing with water, but just walking on it, like just, just absolutely stepping on it, right? And number three, it's in the middle of the lake. If you do the geographical study of it, which is about you know, eight miles around and four miles across, that based on even in the book of John saying it's the third watch of the night, they've been on this row machine in the sports club for nine hours. <laughs> Gosh, I mean, it's January. Like, let me catch up. Like, I might be able to get to an hour. But nine hours, I'm losing it. Like, I'm just all jello right? They're nine hours. And here's the kicker, right? It's not only are you at the end of yourself, it's when you're at the end of yourself, but you still feel like you're just in the middle of it and not getting any further than you ever were. Like I could probably do one more hour, but I'll tell you what I can't do. Nine more hours, right? If there's one physical thing that's established here is that I'm straining. So here's the idea is that disciples in this situation, unlike the last one, are not dying. They're just really tired. How many of you guys felt that before that I mean, it's almost like you might as well. Don't, you don't feel anything. You feel numb. You're not dead, but you're just exhausted. Anybody here have a lot of kids or just a lot of life? I just, like Dominic Worthless said in the first service at Christmas time, what do you want for Christmas? I just want to sleep. That's all that I want, you know? How many of you guys here are mentally tired? There's a point where Kyra, you know, will come home and she'll say, you know, what, what should we do for dinner? And in my mind, I'm just thinking, I can't make any more decisions. Like, I don't know. I don't know what I think. I don't know. Mentally, like, it's not, it's not getting shot in the foot. It's just fatigue. It's like the constant water drip of, of life and ministry. And then, and then lastly, how about emotionally tired? Like, I can put the Rocky song on for one more hour, but I'm all the way done, and I'm only halfway there. <laughs> right? I'm emotionally, physically exhausted. Okay? So he puts them there on purpose. And, and I think we relate to all of it, because I think that those saints are in the situation these saints are in. And I just want to put this up here because I, I think the point of this section of the passage is to not just not to change the scenario, but to give us perspective. When I think this is what Scripture says, is when we are straining at sea, there's three things that I think Mark would want us to know about the position of those that follow. One, that you didn't stumble accidentally out there. You were sent out there. Remember when you got on the minivan, you didn't just like get lost and wander into some van where somebody's handing you candy. Jesus like 
made you get into the boat. Why are they out here? Why do they have no money? Why do they have no extra tunic? They're not out here because they did something wrong. They're out here because they followed and were obedient to the one that Jesus told them to do. Like John said, John uh, Childs the other day when he was preaching about persecution, sometimes if you are not experiencing the wind at your face, you might be heading in the wrong direction. That, that the, the, the wind is actually not a problem. It's, it's a condition of your sentness. It's, it's a confirmation you're actually going the right way. So here's one little takeaway, is that my reaction, my knee-jerk reaction to when I encounter stress and trials, the number one thing that I look at is, how do I fix this? <laughs> right? I must have done something wrong. How do I go back, get an accountability partner? I must be sitting, something must be wrong. I'm not saying that's precluded to the possibility. But there's also a possibility that you're just in the middle of the storm because we don't live in heaven. And he told us this is what it's going to be. That's discipleship 101. Don't be surprised when you get out there. Number two, the next thing I look for is the magical tip that's going to get me out of this. Oh, I know. He's put me in this thing to be a Yoda and a genie. And now I can listen to all the podcasts and get the 15 steps and amen the right thing and figure it out. Listen, there's nothing to learn in this situation except for keep rowing. That's the obedient step, right? So there's nothing to learn. Number three, the next thing I always look for is someone to blame. Your spouse, your friends. There's always some reason, like Peter's going to point to John. You're the reason why we got out here. The reason why they're out there is Jesus called them there. And, and, and understanding that idea that, like, experiencing wind and strain at the oars is about sentness. It's not about mistakes. Number two, that Jesus sees you. That the purview of Jesus on the mountaintop, it's like, better that I would go, because when I go, I can send the Spirit for you, and I can pray on your behalf. Even when you get it wrong, and when you're too tired to irk out groans and utterances, the Spirit will pray on your behalf. And I'm a good high priest because I know what to pray for, and all my prayers work. Okay, and lastly, that he prays for you. I, I know about 30% Chinese, uh, and when I go to Hong Kong, I know how to listen to Chinese kung fu movies, but I can't really talk that well. And uh, one of the problems is because basically there's f- uh, seven tones in Cantonese and, and four tones in Mandarin, and if you get the wrong tone, you might be trying to talk about a goat, and you could be talking about like your mother-in-law or something. You know what I mean? Like it could be really off, and you're just off in, in, in Kansas, you know? And, uh, and so I always appreciate, you know, my dad, he would like help me coax through. He didn't mean goat, he meant Auntie Lucy, you know, or whatever it is, you know. But that's what it, what it means to be an intercessor. It's a very bible word, but it means that he translates your prayers. There was a time in my life that I would see pictures of myself with skinny jeans leading worship, and I'd say, Lord, just make me a worship leader, and I'll change the world for you, and you can use me to lead worship, you know. And I think I, what, the intercessor of Jesus is, is standing in the gap, and he's going, what he really means is, not to be a famous celebrity worship pastor, just make him a worshiper in his life. And the intercessor promises, God listened to Jesus and not me. That, that on the cross, they were all yelling out in the crowd, crucify him. But the intercessor interprets that and says, you know what they really mean to say? Is forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. That he's a good high priest and he knows what to pray and his prayers work. And the reason why he's He's stepping away is to reveal himself and to sanctify us and to pray for us because that's the best thing that he could do, the most powerful thing he could do before the Father. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake, and he was about to pass them by. Now, I've always read this as some sort of like gimmicky hoax where he was like, see you guys later, and we'll get some falafel. You know, just missed it. Like, I forgot what I was doing, you know, very haphazard or, you know, whatever. And uh, no, it's very intentional. Um, it actually harkens back to this old testimony that you maybe have read about 
with Moses, whereby Moses uh, tells God that he wants to see see God face to face. He doesn't want to just think about him as a theory. He wants to see him face to face. And and God sits him down and says, I'd do that, but the problem is your face would burn alive. You know, like no one can see God face to face. You would burn alive. But he says, I'll make you a deal with you. What I can do is I can hide you in the cleft of a mountain and I can walk by you and you can't experience where I am yet, but you can experience where I've been and you can see my back. That's enough for you to to handle. You can, you can, I'll pass by you and see my back. There's another uh, little hook, little hyperlink here about, about Job explaining that there's people that can heal and prophesy and do lots of miracles. But I'll tell you what, if you ever happen to run any, across anybody who walks on water, that's what you call the God card. That's a water walker, and that's God himself. So Mark is not ever the big Jesus is God, like the I am statements in John, but he certainly is showing that Jesus is God by saying he's walking on water. And the invitation in Mark here is not just an invitation for the disciples and for us to meet God's back, as Moses did in the Old Testament, nor is it just to, to see God's work, as Job did, to identify who God is in his divinity. It's to, it's to encounter God's face. It's, it's to see Jesus as the face of God and the face of God in Jesus. And so they're about to see something new, not because of a sermon, but because of this storm. Verse 49, when they saw him, like that's the whole idea, is that God always sees us, but the discipleship process is not the question, does God see us? The question is, do we see him? And do we see him seeing us? And do we see him rightly or in some image that we created? When they saw him by the lake, they thought he was a ghost. That, that word right there is not Holy Ghost, okay? That's phantasma. That is like a scary, spooky Halloween type of ghost. Like they, they were terrified by him. They thought he was a ghost. And it says right there in verse 50, because they all saw him and they were, they were terrified. And they didn't recognize that inside of kind of their greatest fear was actually their greatest salvation, Immediately he spoke to them, he says, take courage. And I love that. It's like, not go muster up courage. He's like, because I'm here, you can actually just take the courage that I'm about to give you. Courage is a gift. It's not a discipline. When you see my face and when you're near me for who I really am, take courage because it's everywhere. It's me. The means and the ends of all sanctification and discipleship is not more tips or self-improvement or, or diligence. It's knowing who he is. To know him is to love him. And to love him is to become like him. That's what 1 John 3 says, is that when we see him, we'll be purified just as he's pure. Is that the scales will fall off of our eyes. And if anybody really got a glimpse of who Jesus was, there's, where else are we going to go? We, you hold the words of life. That's the gift that Jesus gave him is not the exit of the storm. It's the encounter with his presence. To take courage, because it's everywhere, when you see who I am. Not what Newsweek says, not what YouTube says, but in your heart of hearts, in the dark night of soul, don't be afraid. So, I'll close with this kind of hokey little story here, but when I was about 12, um, uh, between my dad interpreting all my rough Chinese, uh, you know, abilities or whatever in Hong Kong in the summer times, um, he would take us uh, to these little excursions in Macau and Malaysia and these little, like, offset Pacific islands and stuff, because it's real cheap. It's like going to Europe and you just have a couple hundred bucks and you go everywhere. You know what I mean? It's like going to Texas, basically. So... Um, and so we go out on this, like, on this little boat, which is like you could spend so much more money and get way less of experience, like almost anywhere else. And we're out on this um, boat, and underneath the boat, there is like a glass observatory where you can go underneath the boat and see like all the Asian uh, corals, like just stuff you're like, what is go- why does that thing have nine eyes or whatever? Like just a bunch of crazy stuff. I'm obviously not a marine biologist, reacts, you know. I don't know if there's a nine-eyed monster down there. But anyways, I'm looking at this stuff. 
having a great time speaking English and a little bit of Chinese. And I'm like, look at this starfish. Look at that piranha. Look at this, like, coral. Look at all these colors. Look, 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 look. And I go, starfish, coral. And I look over here, and then I go, dad. And I was like, why is the starfish and the coral? And why is my dad underneath the boat? My dad um, ate on the Enneagram, uh, went to martial arts school with Bruce Lee, jumped over the side of the boat, held his breath for three minutes, I guess, and swam underneath the boat and was like waving at some other Asian kid. Like, you know what I mean? Like underwater, you can't tell what's going on. I'm like, that's my dad, dude. Why are you waving at my dad? You know, <laughs> swam off to shore. Like this is a regular occurrence. I don't have no time to explain, you know, the, 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 the character here, the personality. But like, it's something to know that somebody cares. And it's also something to know that somebody's competent to care for you. To know somebody is loving, but also that they're strong is a powerful feeling for a child to feel safe. And the, and the means and the ends of all discipleship is not more tips. It is the identity of Jesus. It's to see him for who he really is, because to see him is to, is to love him, and to love him is to become like him. And all of our, our sermons and our days and our waves are all trying to accomplish that same point, maybe different vehicles and people and situations in your life, but it all leads to one place, is let me see Jesus for who you are. Not your back, not your work, what you just did, but who you are and where you are face-to-face in Jesus. And that's the promise of Jesus, to see God is to see Jesus, to see the Father, and see Father, see Jesus. And so, so there's a season. There's a season where Jesus is in the boat, and he speaks to the waves, and he creates the calm. But there's also a season where Jesus walks out on the waves, because he doesn't just want calmness for believers. He wants courage. He wants, he wants them to know that not only is he loving, but he's capable, and he's Lord of our life. And one, and, 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 and one of the, you know, whatever you say to two-year-old, you know, two-year-olds have separation anxiety. One of the best things that he can explain in a season of manifest absence is you tell a two-year-old, like, they always come back. Like, if you ever get lost, like, he's not far away. He sees you, he prays for you, and he's coming back for you. And none of this is wasted. And none of this, all of this is on target. All of this is on purpose. And sometimes it's these storms in our life that, that pull us out on waters to realize that everything is a wave but Jesus. Like that is the mechanism of true discipleship that doesn't just change habits, it changes hearts. Is that job is super helpful for you to pay for your family? But if it is your savior, it will ruin you. And if I don't strip that away, even for a moment, so that you can know that, you won't know what that job really is and then you won't know, know who I really am. And you won't have courage in the middle of that situation and know who you are in that situation, if, if you don't have a situation where that, that group text, you know, some of it, it's like some of us would rather not be in a group text, honestly, like less notifications, right? But there's a group text in your family that you were just never invited to. And for whatever else, people don't care about losing their job, but the sting of rejection is just too much. And sometimes the, the soil of offense is the greatest place for idols to grow, because it's the place that I, I'm, going to, I'm going to think that I can actually depend on something until it's too late. And Jesus wants to spare us that, to bring us into the storm. Sometimes the best thing that Jesus can do is approach you in your greatest fear. I think the reason why he's approaching as a ghost is because sometimes our greatest fears coming true can be the best things that ever happened to us. That if we actually just got fired at 25 instead of 45, we would find out for all the rest of the years of our professional life, that thing is helpful, but it's not saving me. And there's just something in my heart. Like, I don't need to go to a conference to know what my heart knows. Like, I can't trust that thing to be my functional savior. And so Jesus does not want people with theological saviors and functional idols. 
He wants to put you in situations so that what you talk about is how you live. And so, so he, he tests our theological beliefs about who Jesus is with our practical understanding of the world that we live in. He, he puts to bear our greatest fears and our greatest loves and compares them to Jesus. Am I, better? Am, I, am I not greater? Am I not better? So here's my intentional question that I want us to consider today, right? It says that he came as the ghost and not as the Holy Ghost. That's for Pentecost. If, if he came and it felt like to them, I'm not saying he's a ghost, I'm saying it felt like to them that it looked like a ghost. Is it possible that Jesus might actually be walking towards you today in the form of your greatest fear? What's the worst that could happen? What if they took your, their approval away from you? What if they really did love the other sibling more and they just showed it time and time and time again? If it was at that cost and at that price that you might know the one that never rejects you because of the blood of Jesus, wouldn't it be worth it to see that, that juxtaposition, that important holy juxtaposition of what can help me versus what can save me? What if the worst possible scenario came, came true? And what if he met you in that place to do an actual transformation of the heart and not just of habits? So it closes up in uh, verse 51. Then he climbed into a boat with them and the wind died down and they were completely amazed. And this is how I'll close in verse 52. I think that verse 52 tells us, like I'm not, I wasn't there, so it's all a rumor at this point. But what was he praying for the disciples? And I think this is what he was praying in verse 52. They had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. In other words, I think that Jesus went up to the mountain to pray because he'd rather, he'd rather you have a, have a hard life than a hard heart. I think that what he was doing up there is he wasn't saying calm the storm. The reason why it didn't happen, that's all, we know that to be true, because if he did, it would stop. He said, keep them safe in the storm. Help them somehow in the spirit to know that I see them and I've not left them alone. Help them know that I pray for them and I want them to pray for one another, as we're going to read in John 17. But most of all, I pray their hearts would be soft. The only parable, the only sermon that Jesus ever preached in this is that the love of money and the worries of the world and the persecution of life can rain down on a seed so bad that it chokes up the seed and it hardens it. And one of the best things that Jesus ever prays in the high priestly prayers, Lord, I pray, I pray that their hearts would not grow hard. I pray that their hearts would grow, grow soft. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.